Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for over three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before I get into the show proper, I've got some exciting news. We're turning Material Matters into a fair this September as part of the London Design Festival. It will be running from the 22nd to the 25th of September at the Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf, across four floors that will each tell a different, distinct, and I think genuinely fascinating story. We've already signed up the likes of recycled aluminium company Hydro, leading furniture brands such as Foraform and Ragnars, as well as designers and makers working materials that range from grassroots and orange peel to glass and concrete. If you're a furniture manufacturer, designer, maker or material company looking for somewhere to exhibit at this year's fair, drop me a line at grant at materialmatters.design. That's grant at materialmatters.design. Spaces are filling up fast. So my guest in the final episode of this series is the brilliant Majida Clark. Majida is a weaver whose work is concerned with identity and a sense of place. She combines traditional techniques from some very different parts of the world, such as Bangladesh and North Wales, with an aesthetic that's been influenced by Joseph and Annie Albers. She came to textiles relatively late in life, having previously been a teacher, but has gone on to win a number of awards, as well as exhibiting at the Aram Gallery, Mint and Fortnum and Mason in London. She's also collaborated with the likes of the Rothschild Foundation and the Citizens of the World Choir. Majida is a trustee of the UK's Crafts Council. Majida, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for having me, Grant. No, it's a pleasure. How are you? I'm well, yes. Nice sunny day. It is. It's beautiful out there, isn't it? Mm. Shame we're stuck indoors, really. (laughs) (laughs) Was all that reasonably accurate? Yes, it was. Yeah. Good. Good. We have a bit of a tradition on this show that we ask our guests to kind of locate the conversation and to describe their studio now. We're talking over Zoom, and actually I think you're at home, but perhaps we can cheat. I know you have a studio at Cockpit in Bloomsbury. What's it look like? How do you work? So I share my studio with other textile artists, actually. So there are five of us now. It kind of feels like a a little textile factory, actually. It's really nice. I'm the only weaver. We've got two knitters and a beautiful embroiderer and a hat maker. So it's really eclectic. It's a lovely open space. We all get on really well. I've got my loom in the sort of centre of my section of the studio space, which takes up most of my studio space. When I weave, I have to use a lot of the space. So often I have to pull the loom out and take the whole length of the studio up when I'm setting up. But otherwise, I've kind of set it up with my textiles on display so that it's quite easy for me to have clients in there and it looks like a nice space with cushions and blankets out and my artwork on the walls. So it's very colourful. I like all my yarns out. I use my yarns almost as inspiration. So my yarns are colour-coded and I hate clashes. So (laughs) if I get a cone of yarn that really looks like that colour isn't sitting well with another one on the shelf, it has to move. Wow. I find that really important in my space having colors working that's interesting are you like that at home as well i mean are your books because people color code their books right do you color code your books now i've uh, coming from a literature background i find that a bit of a cheat so i don't do that (laughs) um i'm a real sort of purist and my books are coded by publishers oh wow but they look perfect because usually the spines of all the 
modern classics that are the same colorway or at least they're the same size or I've got my Virago so they have the same spines so actually it kind of accidentally ends up having similar colorways but it's much more important for me that they're the same size um sort of scale and are you a collector generally oh you've got me in a yeah nutshell I'm a <laughs> I'm a collector of so many things such as so I've got this amazing Indian silverware collection of sort of not just pure silver but copper that's been silver plated which is what most people would have had pre-1950s so I've got this lovely collection of silverware I collect silver pots silver vases all with really intricate Indian sort of metal work they're really lovely but it also reminds me of home and my family every time I go I bring something back from my grandfather's house it drives everybody mad because it's sort of pieces of furniture. Um, I've got these beautiful brass lamps that were my grandfather's. I went from house to house because I had nowhere to put them for 10 years until I found the spot. I was going to say, all this stuff is out on display, all the silverware, or do, or do you, do you yeah. hide it away? How does that work? No, it's nearly all on display. Right. I kind of designed the house around it, so I had the shelves that were there specifically for the silverware. And... On my grandmother's side, my mum's side, I grew up on a tea plantation with my grandparents. Mm. Mm. It was very neo-colonial, actually. She would have a gong that went and we all had to sit on the veranda for afternoon tea. Right. She'd learnt these traditions from the British because there was this overlap in the 50s when they took over the plantation from the British. So my grandmother was taught very, very proper English manners, but from a bygone era. So... It sort of, there was a sort of a 20 year gap yeah, between, yeah. it was very colonial. And I always collected those teacups and things because she used to have these lovely sets. They were all mix and matching. So I've got all of those. I'm just a real sort of collector of anything that has a personal memory for me and then develop and build and build and build on the collection. Mm, interesting. I mean, this kind of feeds into your practice a little bit, which has several distinct strands i guess there are interior products that you sell on your website and at places like fortnum and mason then there are commissions and there's the public engagement side of what you do and i'm keen to talk about the product side and, and indeed your background we'll, we'll get into both those things but in terms of the commissions what have your clients asked you to do i think the clients that commission me are very familiar with my work so they've already got something in their heads that they want from me Mm. I've had some wonderful commissions, actually, and it ranges from the designs of blanket, blanket designs. What I'm lucky with is the fact that I have clients who allow me the freedom to do what I want with a very clear picture in their head of what they like about me. So we always right. establish right at the beginning, what is it that you like about me? What is it that you want yourself, you know, in terms of my work? So once we've established that, then it's sort of free reign. And so... The Fortnum and Mason Commission, for instance, they basically said, look at Fortnum's heritage. And then they took me around the store to give me some ideas to the point where we went to the top floor and they have bees and they have their own honey. So just to get these ideas. And in the end, the Fortnum's commission that I did for their blanket collection was based on the macaroon counter because the food counter to me is sort of really summarizes Fortnum. And then I had um, last year um, just during lockdown, actually, I had um, a wonderful commission from a Scottish castle to celebrate the centenary of a female Edwardian explorer called Isabel Wiley Hutchinson. 
And in any other situation, I'd have been there in the archives researching. But because of COVID, they just gave me access to the archives online. So I ended up looking at her amazing sketchbooks because we're talking early 20th century. So the photography was there. She was using it, but it was black and white. It was hard to get a sense of color. So I relied mainly on her sketchbooks, which were amazing. And then I did a whole collection after that commission on female explorers pre-20th century that nobody's heard of. <laughs> right. It just inspired me because what was incredible was the fact that these women, they relied on their sketchbooks. Not only were they sort of pioneers, the name of one of my blankets is called Sibylla, and that was based on Maria Sibylla Merian. She was a female explorer. She went to Suriname in her 50s in the 1600s. I mean, it's just an incredible story. And these sketchbooks are so beautiful because it's a limited color palette because they're in strange situations like the Arctic or the jungle. So it's a very small palette of colors that they take. It's very quickly done often, the artwork. So it had this amazing ephemeral sense to it. And so I try to recreate that in that collection. So it all started with the um, Isabel Wiley Hutchinson's watercolors. And so we created this watercolor effect. And then I did two more blankets on other female explorers. That's a commission that feeds into then your collection, as it were. It often does. Yeah. So when I do a commission that's really inspired me, then I sort of go off on a roll because I completely engross myself in that world. And it's not just the artwork. It will be about their lives. It will be about their ideas, their value systems. So for instance, when we come to the naming of my products, there's always a history or a narrative behind it that if people want to, they can look up. So for instance, Sibylla was named after Maria Sibylla Merian. Isabel Wiley Hutchinson is named Tuluk because that was the Inuit name given to her. We've got Hernandez, which was the Mexican name given to another explorer, which were the pet names. And what I loved about that was the sense that if it had been a male explorer that everybody's heard of, they don't get their pet names. The women just disappeared into the culture and became a part of the culture. So they were given traditional names by the people of that culture. And I think, you know, it informed the way I saw these women. So their naming was really important. So where I felt that the men would go and name places after themselves, <laughs> these women sort of took on the name given to them in the culture that they were trying to embed themselves in for a short while, you know, and I, I think it says a lot. Yeah, yeah. Are these stories explained, I mean, are they, are they on labels when you buy the pieces or do people have to kind of go and do their own research? No, I give little story cards. Right. I've right, always right, right. done that because yeah. it's so em embedded in my work, the idea of the narrative and the story. So if you get a Welsh blanket, you get a story card with a map of where it was made and a little bit of the history of the region. Or if it's the Sibylla blanket, you get the story and you'd get the actual artwork that the blanket was based on. So people can find a connection and then research their own history mm. about that piece. Mm. Can we define what you mean by social engagement? What work is socially engaged? The social engagement is probably one of the most important aspects of my practice that I came into this with a social engagement value system really mm. thinking so i became a weaver because of the jamdani weavers in dhaka in bangladesh that was the sort of embryo of my practice was looking at 
narratives of heritage and how it fed into lives today and the environment of the Jamdani weavers who've got UNESCO World Heritage status. So for me, visiting them, it was really important. I remember they call me sister. I become sort of a member of the family. I eat on the floor. The way that it's set up, the Jamdani weavers, it's one village. People weave in their homes. It's not a factory system. It's often husband and wife. Traditionally, it used to be all men, but now it's families. Each family has a loom in their home bamboo pit loom so you go into their homes it's a very private personal space it's all about building trust so for me I went into their bedroom because there's a bed and a loom there's a shared communal kitchen so children would be running in and out but the family workplace was the home so for me it was really important that I respected that but also that I did something as a Bengali person myself in order to celebrate that history and that culture. So right from the beginning, there was a sense of social engagement. My mum sometimes would go and collect my scarves if I'd come back because I would weave the first scarf with them. We do one together. I'll do one design. Then they own that design. So they'll make 10 pieces in that design. Mm. Then I'll go next door to the next family and I'll do a different scarf and I'll weave the first one and then they will own that design. So we have maybe four designs you know, 40 scarves each season. And then sometimes I'd have an auntie that comes back. Some, you know, so we have different ways of sort of bringing it. But every time they saw my mum, they'd say, oh, she's going to save us. So there was a real sense of responsibility that they wanted the world to hear about their work, that they had UNESCO status. There was a sense of patronage. Yeah. So that started my whole practice was the sense of responsibility. My understanding of the Jamdani weavers is they don't give away the secret of their weaving. And it's been described as woven air. Yeah. I think it's Petronius, the Roman mm. writer, who's, who's in Nero's court out of interest. That's right. Described as woven air. And so it's a very secretive process. And I'm just wondering how you went about finding out or persuading them to let you in, as it were. I think trust is the sort of key word here. And it also happens in the UK with the sort of Welsh mills and the Lancashire mm. mills. It's all about trust. So it, you have to spend a lot of time building that trust. It took me about a year. I was in my final year at university um, at and I was writing my dissertation. I knew I wanted to write about them. I knew they wouldn't let me in. Even getting there, it's quite an experience. It's quite a long way outside of Dhaka in an area that people don't feel is safe. It's the mouth of the Ganges. Right? Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. also a lot of political unrest there. Right. So the first time I had to have an escort to go there because they said it wasn't safe. And so for me, the initial answer was no when I requested because they don't want outsiders. Mm. Then when they heard me speak Bengali, that sort of allowed me a certain amount of access that other people wouldn't have because I could speak their language. Funnily enough, they said to my mum, I can't stand a word she says, but you know, <laughs> I've got completely different accents and I've got an English accent when I speak Bengali, but we get by. But they respect the fact that I speak their language. However, as a woman and a middle-class woman, the role that they saw me in was a buyer because there's a power structure here, which is the weavers are often male. It's a working class profession in Bangladesh. It's what laborers do. And middle-class women are seen as outsiders in that village. And they are the buyers. They're the women who own the shops and buy the saris. So they have the patronage. So the power relationship is quite interesting. So when I came in there, I guess there was an established power structure of this 
woman is not only is she middle class Bengali, therefore she's going to buy from us um, and she has all the power, but she's also a Westerner and has more power. You know, so there was a lot of suspicion. And when they discovered that I could weave, they couldn't quite believe the level of weaving that I could do. Not because I'm an amazing weaver, mm. but because the way the systems work there is that you specialize in one aspect of weave. So you have the spinners and then you have the people who put the beam on and then you have the people who wind and then you have the people who actually weave and then you have threaders. Nobody there knows the full weaving process. So it's interesting. It's like a factory setup in that case. It is like a factory setup. Yeah. Um, So everybody's in the same village though, or village to village next door to each other. So you'd get your dye and then you'd go and send it to the beamers and the beamers would put it on because that's their specialism and they do it so quickly. When they realised that in England, the first thing they said is women weave in England. You know, it was like, it was such a crazy idea for them. And then when they realised that I understood every aspect of the weaving, because that's the way our training is in the UK. Mm. Mm. I think they were just so impressed with the fact that they'd never met a Bengali middle-class woman who could weave. Right. They'd never met a Westerner who was Asian who could weave. So this sort of sense of she can do what we can do. So you're a curiosity to them is what you're saying fundamentally. Totally. The whole village come to visit me. They know my favourite food now. (laughs) The guy who runs sort of, he's got three or four looms. His wife always cooks my favourite food. We sit and have a process of eating and chatting and exchanging gifts at the beginning and then we can get to business. Mm. And that's been built up over six, seven years now. Yeah, yeah. It benefits them, you're paying them for their work or they take a percentage of sales or how does that work for them? So I pay them. Right. And that's how it's sort of very clear cut. We weave together, they're my designs and then I pay them for the pieces. I pay them more than people pay for saharis, which is five metres. My scarves are 1.8 metres and they're half the width. So it takes them, it's five times faster to make Mm. my scarves. It was one of the things we looked at was efficiency actually. Mm. I didn't know what I was going to make with them. I sat and observed for a long, long time and then said, okay, so we need to take out, we need to create more space, uh, negative space within the work. This is so time consuming. It's like tapestry weaving. You need to do less patterning, but make the patterning bigger. We really looked at efficiency. And were they open to that? Not at all at the beginning. (laughs) Um, And my designs, they thought they were awful, you know. Right. Um, they would call me up saying, sister, it's so ugly. It's so ugly, you know, uh, because I didn't use color and we took out color as well. So yeah. I'd say we're taking out all the color. We're doing it as black and white with a pop of color, which they really saw as, you know, against the grain of what they'd done for centuries. Mm. And so there was sort of a lot of questioning going on, but actually this sense of how we make it efficient was really important to me. And then I would pay them the same as they would for a sari in Bangladesh because I wasn't bartering. I wasn't going to go there with them, you know. And that's part of how we built that trust that we could, we did half width. So the looms are the width of a sari and I would do them half width to make a scarf. So you could do two or twice as fast. Yeah, yeah. We have a relationship. It's a two-way one because I learn a lot. They taught me how to do this. So they allowed me in, um, It's very personal because I know their families and their children, but also for them, they became braver. The the thing Mm. about the 
Bengali weavers is they say yes first and then you find out they can't do it you know so it's very much a yes culture they always say yes and then it goes wrong and then I have to sort of correct it <laughs> and then I sort of just sort of gave into that and then it just became this thing where I was like oh, let's spot the mistake because the mistake is what makes it handmade you know and I would say throw something in throw something in that is out of the blue so the first collection was called Suddenly because I couldn't find the word for unexpected. In Bengali, I couldn't say what it was. And I kept saying hotat. Hotat means suddenly. Um, and so they said, oh, you mean suddenly. So in the end, we called the collection Suddenly. And so there was one thing. And it, was, it was about me encouraging them to be brave and put their signature in and their hand so it maybe make one motif a bit bigger than the other or make it asymmetrical you know or throw an extra line in you know um and it took them a while because they're such perfectionists so we learned a lot it was a lovely relationship actually very good we're in a slightly strange place in this country at the moment in terms of the virus. I mean, we have to talk about the virus in this in this podcast every time, I think. But anyway, the vast majority of people here have given up wearing a mask on public transport. Perspex screens are coming down. That said, more people appear to be contracting COVID again. So I'm interested, how did this extraordinary situation affect your practice? I think I'm right in saying that cockpit largely remained open. Did you continue going into the studio? Did it make you reevaluate your practice? Well, I mean, the other thing that happened at that time was my kids were off school as well. Yeah. So that makes it very hard to be going into the studio. Cockpit were amazing because they supported the makers um, in terms of allowing the studios to be open, but also helping in terms of subsidising the studios. Um, but I decided to take everything with me and work from home and I couldn't take my loom. So I had to think very carefully about how I worked at the time, I thought it was really limiting because I didn't have my loom. So I, all that time I could have spent doing something for myself, I couldn't weave. It's a hefty thing. It's not something you can take home. So I just decided to sort of refocus and try different things. I went back to my sketchbook, which was really, really wonderful, as well as homeschooling, obviously had to do that as well. Um, but then I I just realized that I, I found it really liberating the first lockdown because I wasn't expecting it to be that long. I'd taken all my things with me. I'd taken my products with me, actually, so that I was getting still getting sales online, mainly in the US. So I could actually tick over in terms of I was running to the post office and sending things to New York and Atlanta. And so business was okay initially. And then it started to sort of slow down. And then I thought, I'm going to do what I've wanted to do for so long, which is do my indigo dyeing. So initially, just before lockdown, I was supposed to do a project with a Bangladeshi ethical department store that only uses vegetable dyes and natural materials. And we were going to work with um, some indigo dyes in Bangladesh called Living Blue. Right. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're a sort of female charity. They're a women's collective. Okay. And they're farmers that have grown this dye. They're a sort of charity organization now. They grow the dye and then they create the indigo, but also they weave and indigo dye fabric as well. So I was about to start a project with them and I couldn't because of lockdown. So I, I started to do it on my own. I started indigo dyeing on my own with their indigo dye and looked at the history of indigo, which was basically the word, <laughs> came the indigo plant 
in Greek meant the plant from India. So we sort of retraced that history of sort of reappropriating indigo from Japan and sort of China and the Far East and also East Africa and started to think about where does that come from and how did it disappear? It doesn't disappear in India, but it certainly lost its prominence there. And that was the East India Company and the colonial history. Yes, that was tea, was it? It was not just tea, but it's also about pace and speed. So they wanted cotton. They had a mass market. They needed to do it quickly. Indigo was not speed, you know. So it slowly died there. And so I just wanted to look at my history and reappropriate that. So I actually dyed lots of indigo, worked with silk. And then when I came back to London, I produced some artwork which I hardly ever get a chance to do, is always commissions. So for me to do exactly what I wanted to do for me, not for anybody else, was actually really liberating. So I did some indigo with some silk dyes, natural unbleached silk artworks. And they were each named after a different river in Bangladesh. You know, the colour of the river would be coloured with the dye. Mm. That became my project and then I sold them. <laughs> it was amazing. Actually, it was quite nice for me to know that I can start from doing something that I want to do that was not a commission, that wasn't based on the last piece of work I did. You know, just sort of move myself forward and really focus on my artwork, but still with my identity and my history behind it. And then I, I think I posted it on Instagram and it sold. It has commercial value. Well, there you go. And now I'm commissioning, I, in fact, I take Nipa Doshi, actually. Um, ah, who's also been on the podcast. Yes, I think Nipa's going to have one too, actually. I'm going to make one for her okay. as well. So, yeah, yeah she's a, a friend. She's been a great support for me as well, actually. I was quite intrigued. You were asked by a website in an interview during the pandemic what you were looking forward to when the pandemic was over. You answered a, a new way of working and a slower pace. I mean, now we're back to sort of normality has that happened are you working in a different way i'm definitely had a slight shift of direction in terms of wanting to focus more on my artwork and doing smaller commissions on my own loom so it's my hands and working in our studio mm. so although i produce a collection of blankets and i love doing the commissioned work on that and we do all the sampling those blankets are made in a mill so that it gets sent to some other hands to produce. So for me to have a chance to work with my own hands, with my ideas and be really creative and take away those limitations. So for instance, you know, looking at form and structure within the work, which you can't do in a mill, you know, you really, you are limited in terms of form, number of yarns you can use, colours, but also in terms of shape and actually thinking carefully about the form that my artwork's going to take, that has definitely started to happen. Whether I'm working less or slow down, no. Um, <laughs> I seem to always say yes and take on more work. I think at the time I really wanted to because I saw how liberating that was for me creatively. And then I barely picked up my sketchbook in six months, which is what I want to do, you know. So some of it, yes, and the rest of it is forgotten. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, also during the pandemic period, obviously we had George Floyd was murdered in the US. We saw the rise of the Black Lives Matters movement. We're going to be talking about your background in a little more detail in a minute. And, and as you said, you're originally from Bangladesh. You've talked about championing diversity in your role as a trustee with the UK Crafts Council. Previously, I think I'm right in saying you're a talent ambassador there. Yes. So did Black Lives Matter affect your thinking and practice? It affected many things, not just in terms of work, but in terms mm. of home life, in terms of looking at my children's curriculum, 
in terms of looking back on the way that I've been brought up in this country, there was a definite sort of shift in my thinking. Mm. I've always had an aspect of my work where, for instance, I mentor interns. I've kind of shifted recently very specifically towards working with black Asian Bengali girls as well or first generation university just because that's where I can have the most impact and so if somebody does an internship with me I really want to not just say let's weave actually to be honest they need a lot more weaving practice because they've had two years of COVID and they've barely had access to looms so there has been a lot of the weaving practice, but it's much more so things like, let's write your personal statement. Who are you? Let's look at how you're presenting yourself in words. And because I used to have an English teacher background, we really focused in on sort of developing them and their identity. So I've always done that. But what became quite interesting for me is the sense of doing advocacy on all levels, whether it was within the Crafts Council. It's part of the reason I took on the Crafts Council role, actually but also in my own practice, but also at home. So it made me realise, for instance, I don't know how I never thought this before, but I realised that I asked my son about what he'd done. He's just done his GCSEs. And it turned out that he had never read a book by a black or Asian author or a woman even, that over five years of his schooling in the secondary school, they'd all be male writers. So... I'd not asked that question. I'd not really paid attention to it. I used to be a head of English and as a head of English and then as a literacy inspector for Camden, we did look at curriculum and making it a 360 degree one and making sure that you had a variety and a range of authors and writers. But I suddenly realised that my whole framework was a Western European framework that I thought I was questioning, but actually wasn't questioning enough Yeah, from the sort of people that I was trained, I mean, like amazing sort of modernist artists, sculptors like Louise Bourgeois, people that I really look up to, Annie Albers, you know, who I have this amazing affinity with. But through all of that, I was completely excluded from the, because I was brought up in this country, I was excluded from the Indian sculptors and the Indian artists and the Bengali artists, you know. So there was a whole culture that was almost denied to me despite being Bengali. And I couldn't believe that as an educated woman with an MA in English who questioned culture and diversity and everything she wrote, I hadn't thought about the way I'd been trained until then. It's interesting because in an interview, you said that because you were visible as an ethnic minority, that you thought you were doing enough. And then you went on to say, it slowly dawned on me that I was both complicit and complacent. So I guess I want to know how are you complicit and how are you complacent? Gosh, do you know, you've done your homework, haven't you? Occasionally. <laughs> do you know, that interview was really interesting because it's one of the few interviews that I felt allowed me to completely be open and honest and didn't pigeonhole me. And it was an interview that I was happy to show my friends and everybody else. In, I mean, I'm always happy to show my friends interviews, but it was one that I was actually very proud of because I was incredibly frank. So yeah, that was an interesting one. Complicit and complacent. Yeah, I think... I'm still uncomfortable about being wheeled out <laughs> as a sort of representative. It happens. And in many ways, it's important that it happens. You know, as the saying goes, you've got to see it to be it. I've spoken to lecturers at universities where they say they're Bengali girls 
just don't finish the course or just don't take it on as a career, even though they've done the degree in it, or don't even go into it. So at school level, it's not even an option. This is weaving we're talking about. Well, textiles even. Textiles in general, yeah. Yeah, yeah or art or, you know, that mm. sort of, that field of the creative industries. There's two barriers here. We have the barrier of Asian culture, Bengali culture, Indian culture, middle class culture, where you are a doctor, a teacher, a lawyer. You know, it's not considered a respected profession. And also the idea of a guaranteed job is much more difficult in the creative industries. So there are those barriers. And I feel that I do need to sort of spend time thinking about schools and how schools promote this. But also at university, I constantly get told that the Bengali girls just leave or just don't take it up as a profession. Mm. So those things matter. And I think having seeing me do this and actually make a career of it is important. And so I understand why that's important. However, I don't want to be a token of anything. And I also don't represent all Asian people or ethnic minority groups. I can't represent everybody. So I'm very conscious of, I can't speak for everybody. So it puts me in a tricky position. Is it an extra pressure? Do you feel a pressure? There is a pressure. That you are representing, even if you don't want to represent. Yeah, I mean, there's still not enough black and Asian makers. There just isn't enough. No. And that's very clear. So we have to be vocal. I'm worried about stereotyping and sometimes I worry I stereotype myself, you know, that I sort of make something and somebody picks up on colour, for instance. And then suddenly there's this link to my heritage. Mm. And maybe there is a link to my heritage. I grew up surrounded by colourful saris. Nobody wore navy and grey. Whereas in the UK, people know what matches with black or grey or navy. In Bangladesh, we know what goes with pink or what goes with green. But I am very conscious when somebody picks up on that link. And at the same time, I'm using that. Yeah, the fact that I use bright bowls of colour that definitely is influenced by my culture. So there's a tension there, a real tension. I'd like to think that it's a dialogue, but it's very tricky and I am conscious of it. And I also feel very conscious of not speaking for other people. Is that a tension that can be resolved, Majida, or is that just something you have to live with? I think I think you have to live with it. I think mm. there's a tension in just being here, to be honest. That tension is just a way of life for most people who are from another country living in the diaspora. I think it's there and you can sort of turn it and spin it into something incredibly exciting and positive that I sort of straddle two cultures, that my children are mixed race, that they have Welsh grandparents and Bengali grandparents. It's amazing. They've got quite strict Christian grandmother and a strict Muslim grandfather and grandmother, that they are so multicultural and it's something to celebrate. But at the same time, I'm very aware of the difficulties of that growing up, that I was forced to speak English. So I forgot my own language, that the schools in the 70s said, you're confusing your child, don't speak Bengali at home. And then I barely spoke Bengali. And it was only as a sort of 16, 17 year old when I started to find my own identity that I thought, actually, I, I want to be able to speak to my grandmother. And it was always innate because I came to this country at five. So I actually could speak it. And it came back. I was going to talk about your background because we've alluded to it the whole way through because it does have an influence on your work, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, you were born in Bangladesh into what sounded like quite a comfortable family. You grew up with your grandparents on the tea plantation, as you mentioned. Can you remember living in Bangladesh and what it was like? Totally. It's one of the strongest memories. It's a, it's a formative memory, actually. You know, sort of pre-five, 
I've got very vivid memories. But then we used to go back every year. So we would spend time with my grandparents on the plantation. And I think, you know, essentially that is why I became a weaver eventually, (laughs) despite the sort of push by my family, my schooling and everybody to go into English and do something academic and do three academic A-levels and, you know, sort of do this, that eventually I found my way back to do this explosion of craft and making of the country that I'm from, that I remember, I remember everybody around you can make something. My aunts would be stitching and doing the most beautiful embroidery. My mum made all my clothes. You were just taught to make, but there was a class distinction in making. So there was the sort of trade And then there was the making in the home, you know, and trade ones were weavers and silversmithers and sort of the potwallers and everybody made around me. So I grew up knowing that either I would learn to make it myself or somebody could make it for me. Even now, my jewellery, I go to Bangladesh, I design something, I give it to a maker to Mm. make for me. Mm. Because if I can't find it, I'll just have it made. It goes with textiles, with fabrics, with print with anything. So it was a country where I was surrounded by people who were constantly making. And I think that really affected my understanding. But also saris, wearing this cloth that was no shape was really interesting for me that there was a way of wearing a sari, but actually in the way that fabric was set out for you here into clothing with arms and legs and shape and pockets and things. There's nothing on a sari. It's mm. really free. Mm. Um, and I really loved the sense of what you could do with fabric and textile and the way it created memory in that way. So coming to Stockport at the age of five <laughs> must have been a bit of a culture shock. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that day of arrival actually was, I think we arrived in London and we were put in a cell actually, when we arrived, my sister and I, I was five, I think I had my fifth birthday on the plane. My sister was three and my mum, my dad already lived here. He'd been living Mm. here for 12 years. What was your father doing here? So he came, funnily enough, as a textile engineering student. You went to Lancashire. That's why we ended up in Manchester, because the, the college was there for technology. And he dropped out, hated it, realized he couldn't do it. And saw this amazing building that looked like a toast rack in Manchester. It's quite a famous building. They call it the toast rack. I think it's his 60s building. And he thought, oh, that's a nice building. I'll go in and have a look at what they're doing there. And it was open day for catering college. So then he ended up in catering for the rest of his life. My dad had restaurants and hotels. So it's a piece of architecture that changed the shape of his career. How fascinating. Yeah. And actually drawn to the textile centre of, you know, at the same time we went to Manchester for a very specific textile reason, actually. Interesting. Um, But my dad's ambitions for me were very much to do with, we got you here to get a good education. And that's what you're going to do. I was going to ask why you came over at that point, because at 76, I think Bangladesh got independence in 71, but it was under martial law at that point. It was, yeah. I think there was a threat of India invading, backed by the Soviet Union. Is that why you left or were you always going no, to leave at that point? I think um, uh, my dad was already in England before yeah. independence yeah, yeah. war. Um, I was born in the independence war. We were literally evacuated. So it, it was a time of strife mm. and real troubles. I mean, we were evacuated. I was in hiding. It was a scary time for my family. So when my mum married my dad, it was an arranged marriage. You know, there was always the intention that my mum would come to the UK, but the UK wouldn't have us. <laughs> so yeah. it was that simple. My dad died in February and we found these letters that my dad had written 
every year to the home office and we've got them all, all the rejections. Mm. And my dad would say, you know, my, my child is now, she's getting to school age, please can we, you know, constant. And so eventually we were allowed in on residency. And that's my first memory of England was arriving, being put in some cell, which I now realise was a Heathrow Airport immigration detention centre. And there was a TV in a corner in 1976. And it was on that still image that they used to have when there was no TV on of the girl with the noughts and crosses. Oh, the girl with the chalkboard. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that's my first memory. I've never forgotten (laughs) that girl. And that was what we landed to. And then Stockport, to a terrace house in Stockport. Yeah, yeah. Your mum worked in a textile factory, I think. Yeah. And then retrained as a teacher. So your lives have kind of gone the, almost the, the other way around. Yeah. There's a quote I read which said, uh, once you'd retrained, you never saw a piece of fabric again. And I, I wonder why that was. It sounds like quite a binary, a binary decision. You know, my mum would not consider herself a textile person in any way. She just made because that's what they were taught to do. So she was very skilled at um, sewing and stitching. And so she knew when she arrived, she wasn't allowed a job formally because her qualifications in Bangladesh didn't count for anything here so this was 76 it was pretty racist the only work she could get was as a piece worker in a denim factory where she worked from home so she had this industrial sewing machine in our box room we had a tiny little room it was a two-bed house with a little box room and she had like loads of jeans it was just like it was just full of denim fabric and she would stitch these things together as denim jackets jeans and things like that send them off to the factory she only did that for a short while I remember sort of being surrounded by denim and then never seeing it ever again or any fabric because for her that was just uh, a means to an end and it was a necessity when she arrived that she wanted to work and that was they were the only people, these textile factories were the only people that would give, um, you know, Bengali immigrants a job. Were you making things? Were you helping her? Were you playing with textiles when you were a child? I was always playing with textiles. I would create little worlds. I don't think I realised that there was such a job as a set designer, but I think that's what I was doing, just making mini sets and creating little worlds. So I was always making in 3D Sometimes with fabric, sometimes with paper. And then that was slowly hammered out of me, really. (laughs) You know, as you went through school, GCSE and A-level art was very much to do with fine art. And you're told, unless you're going to become an artist, don't bother. Don't bother wasting one of your three A-levels on A-level art. And I didn't know I wanted to go to art school. I just wanted to carry on doing art. But it was very narrow. So for me, it disappeared and it took 30 years to come back. The next time I had free time, which was when I was on maternity leave, and I went to City Lit and decided to go to night school. So you became an English teacher going into education like your mother. Were you a good teacher? Did it make you happy? Was it something you always wanted to do or secretly did you want to be a textile designer for all those years? It was interesting because I did an MA at Queen Mary in, in fact, it was literature, culture and modernity. So it was, it was quite a sort of broad MA, um, I went to work for a graphic design company, actually, as their sort of assistant, studio assistant and writer. So I would do a lot of the copywriting and they were all amazing designers, but they all struggled to write properly. So I did that on minimum wage and I couldn't survive um, in London on what I was paid to work for a graphic design company. So it was a sort of practical Thing. I was on my own in London. I needed a job. And I heard that if you did a teaching PGCE, they actually paid for your PGCE. <laughs> so for me, it was that practical. I fell into it because I wanted a job that paid me a better salary that used my skills. 
And so it was an obvious choice to make. But it was a financial one because I didn't have, at the time, you know, wealthy parents that would support me to live at home. So I needed to earn a living and it needed to be enough to live in London. Mm. You were very successful and became head of English at your secondary school and then an educational consultant. Presumably you could have stayed in education for life. So was there a moment when you realised you wanted to do something else to become a designer? Yeah, I have to say when I was teaching, I was never bored once. Uh, It's not a job you ever get bored of because you're so busy and each year is different and each child is different. And becoming a head of English, I became one quite quickly. So to me, it was really stimulating to be able to drive curriculum, not just teach, but actually drive the curriculum within your school and the education of 2000 children, you know. So it was great at the time, but as you have children and each time the work gets harder, it's harder and harder to run a department. So then I went part-time and worked for Camden as a, an inspector and education consultant. And that was better pay than a head of English part-time, but at the same time, it was nowhere near as interesting or stimulating. Right. So that slowly sort of killed my love of teaching. Mm. And then I was on maternity leave with my third child and I'd always loved textiles. So I decided, as you do when you're on maternity leave for a year, do night school. So as if having a third child wasn't enough, um, I went to <laughs> night school and did a full-time course at City Lit on wow. and textiles. That's quite driven. That's quite determined. Yeah. I mean, I'd been in teaching for a long time. I'd been in education for a long time. And I kind of felt it was now or never. I think there was something there that said, this is your chance. You've still got time. You can do this. And so I basically went to night school. I think Carolyn Bartlett was my tutor, who's an amazing textile artist. And she just went, I think you've got something there. And so at the end of that, I thought, I'll give it a go. I'll go to university. It it was so sudden. I'd barely talked to my husband about leaving work (laughs) and not going back. Um, I think it was a shock for all of us. But it felt like I had to do it then because I would never get the chance again. It was a moment where I had to make a very, very clear choice. It was the end of my maternity leave. And it was, do you go back to work or do you resign? You know, it was that simple, really. And so you went to the CAS. You were what, 40 years old when you went back to study. Do you think being a bit older was beneficial? Does it gave you a greater sense of focus? Oh, totally. Mm. I really believe that saying that education is wasted on the young. I mean, you know, 18 <laughs> is too young to be at university. It's such a gift. You don't realise what a gift it is to have that time to learn from people and I mean, I certainly didn't realise it first time round when I had my first degree or even my MA. But as an adult woman with a very clear time limit, I had three children. I had to manage my home and my household and do a degree that I was very focused. So mm. not a minute was wasted. Um, mm. I would work the hours that my kids were at school in the studio at college and then I would come home do the mum thing and then work late at night. I remember writing my dissertation, asking my friend's daughter to take my kids out for the day, just get them out of the house, you know, in the holidays, because I had to write. You're so focused that it just makes you very driven and very ambitious because I couldn't waste that opportunity that I'd got. I'd had three years and I needed to make sure I hit the ground running. Mm. And when did you discover your aesthetic, Majida? There is a distinct kind of Annie Alba's influence in what you do. Mm. I'd say I was quite eclectic at the same time as having a very distinct look. Uh, and I think that sort of 
tension sort of kind of sums me up really that I can't be pigeonholed. I don't want to narrow down. I don't want to just make blankets. I make these heavy wool, beautiful British blankets, and then I make very fine sheer scarves. But within all of that, there is a sort of clear, modernist, clean aesthetic that is very much to do with the way that I was trained in terms of my university, but also in terms of what appealed to me. There was a strong Bauhaus tradition that I admired, actually, before I even saw the aesthetic. There was an admiration of the principle. Mm. It was that that sort of drew me into that aesthetic, I guess. So before the aesthetic, I think, was the idea. The idea of a group of rebels creating something and breaking the norm in a time of such upheaval, finding their voice and their independence, creating a school of makers, having a very clear set of principles. So it was that. And then within that, discovering Annie Albers, who was, for me, she was this amazing multidisciplined heroine. So it was the person, actually. And then came the aesthetic. And, and actually, in many ways, you know, the fact that she could make things out of pins and then she'd make things out of cloth. And then, you know, it was just this sort of idea that there was a freedom in how you made so it was that that appealed. And then I slowly found my space within that look because I was very conscious of the fact that it is very geometric. And maybe that's what appeals to me in weaving is that it, it's a, it's two lines that cross. So even when you do circles, you're doing circles within a square. So there's a limited structure that creates geometry. In weaving, in the way that you print, you don't do that. It's stitch, you don't have to do that. But in weaving, it is lines. It sort of felt right that when I started to weave squares, that those squares had to, although they were formal and they were very clear squares, within that, there had to be a sense of um, confusion, that you don't see a pattern, that it's not a repeat there is a repeat because I have to do it in a mill, but there's a fluidity in that sort of tight structure and format. And that became the thing that I did in everything, that there were clear lines, but within that, no repeat. Yeah, yeah. You talked about the blankets that you have made in a, a mill in Wales that are made from lamb's wool, and then the muslin scarves that are made in Bangladesh, as we've discussed. Other than your aesthetic, is there something else that links them? I mean, they, on the surface, it seems they seem quite disparate things to be weaving. Yeah. I think it's all to do with narrative and place and how that leads to creating this sort of story of your identity. And so I would say that there's a link with all of those places and the fact that they're regional skills. And I'm fascinated by regional skills because what I will always acknowledge is those skills are better than my skills. I have skills as a weaver and I have skills as a designer, but what they have is a heritage that makes their skills so much better than mine. So it's sort of celebrating regions and how a region. So that's why I'm quite clear in terms of when I make that it has to have a sense of the heritage of where it's made. So why Wales? I mean, I understand Bangladesh. Wales, is that to do with your husband's background? It is. It is. But it's also to do, I think, very much so with sort of growing up in the 70s and seeing those Welsh blankets everywhere. I've got a 1960s Welsh blanket cape. I've got also, I've, I collect vintage Welsh blankets. Um, <laughs> I think there's a sort of, there's a real 70s, 60s aesthetic that I really like that is very quintessentially British for me, actually. 
but also on top of that, that my children's family on their dad's side have got a Welsh heritage as well. So when I worked with a Welsh blanket, it was very much to do with, there are very few Welsh mills left. It's a dying heritage, much in the way that UNESCO Jamdani weavers are a dying heritage, but it's a skill that is incredibly modern, actually. You know, what they create and what they do has a real modernist aesthetic to it. And so for me, I became really fascinated by double cloth when I was doing my degree. I knew that double cloth allowed me to really play with pattern and structure, that it gave you a lot of room to create lots of different shapes. For the lay people who might be listening to this, double cloth, can you explain? So when you weave, you usually have a warp and a weft, and it's usually one set of a warp, one warp, a single warp, and um, it's pretty straightforward. You can do twills, you can do patterns and things on that. Um, with double cloth, you have two warps. It takes twice as long to make because you have to weave on both directions. It's two cloths that weave into one. And so if you turned it over, you would get a, the opposite, the negative pattern on the back. So you can actually have two patterns in one. Um, it takes twice as long to make. It uses twice as much material. It's far more time consuming, but it allows for a lot of negative space. So for instance, if I did the squares and the checks that I did on a single cloth, you would get something like a madras check mm. so, or a tartan. The, mm. the cross would always come through, the weft and the warp would always come through. With a double cloth, you can make the background disappear. So sometimes the cross would come through and sometimes it wouldn't. So for me, the negative space was as important as actually what was created in terms of the pattern. And double cloth allowed that. And the Welsh tradition is hundreds of years old and it uses that technique. And that was why I sort of started to research the Welsh mills. And then I realised that they were in the middle of nowhere, that they were disappearing because the young people left the villages. There wasn't enough public transport to get them to work there for apprenticeships, that there were huge issues and many, many of the same issues that the Bengali weavers were experiencing in terms of the young kids were going off to work at the Primark building. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. exactly the same. When I talked to the mill owners in Wales, it's like, well, why aren't you getting apprenticeships for people? And they're like, they just say the bus isn't coming or they can't get there. They're so isolated, these places. It's the same principles. And then there's this second idea that there's an innate memory that comes with cloth from a region. People come to me and say, oh, that pattern, it looks really familiar. Or when I make a Jamdani scarf, a lot of Indian people would say, Oh, that really reminds me of my grandmother's sari. So although I sort of, I will supersize a motif, it's always rooted, you know, I might play with this, the shape, the structure. Um, I'll do something different, but it's rooted in the original motif or the pattern. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of memory seems a vital part of, of your interest in textiles, really. Yeah. I think there's something really unique about fabric and the way it holds memory. I think you've got it on a sort of very sensual level in the terms that, you know, so for instance, I've got my grandmother's sari because it reminds me of my grandmother, not just the sari itself, but actually the shape, the way it sags and it holds the body shape, smell, the way it keeps the scent of the person. So actually cloth holds memory in a very physical, sensory way. And then you've got the sort of the pattern and the history of patterning that happens that you look at, say, for instance, the Paisley pattern, which is actually the Buddhist in Indian motifs. And that is the mango. <laughs> so, you know, there we are naming it Paisley. 
it's actually a mango. Mm. And so what I would do is take that Buddhist pattern and create it in as many different ways as I can, but keeping the essence of the shape of a mango and playing with that pattern and structure so that somebody looks at it and has a memory or a sort of an essence of what it was and what it reminds them of. So, you know, there's an aesthetic memory, but there's also a very physical memory to cloth. Yeah, yeah. Majida, our time, sadly, is up. I've really enjoyed that. Me too. I mean, kind of my closing question really is is what we can expect from you in the near future. Yeah, I'm sort of looking at, um, I'm doing some pieces and I'm sort of stumbling at the framing side because I want to frame them differently. Right. I've really sort of focused on looking at how do we display our work as textile makers because it's very difficult. It's a complex material to work with because it's fragile, because you put glass on it and it disappears. You need to see it. You need to touch it. But how do you do that and then frame and create an artwork from it? So I'm working with a product designer, actually, to look at how we sort of look at artwork Mm. as textiles, because I think it's having a moment. I think textiles Mm. are having a real moment in terms of artwork. Well, certainly as Sheila Hicks at the Hepworth recently, there's a lot of it going on. There's a lot of artwork going on. Yeah. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that. Majida, thank you so much for time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. To find out more about Majida's work, go to majidaclark.com. There are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, which has changed to material.matters underscore grant.gibson. And you can sign up to the Material Matters newsletter and find out all about the new fair I'm launching this September at the Barge House Oxotower Wharf at materialmatters.design. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. So that's it for another series. I'm going to have a short break, but Material Matters will be back at the end of August. I hope you all have a great summer and thanks very much for listening.